Welcome, travelers, to Sci-Fi Unchained, where we enjoy a greater science fiction discussion. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now sit back, engage, and unchain your brain. Alright, let's get into it. So, we got Andor Season 1 with 12 episodes, closed out recently, and wow, was it great for so many reasons. But firstly, it should be noted that this is, aside from Solo, a Star Wars story, which I think a lot of people forget about, the first slice of Star Wars that has nothing to do with the Force or Force users. It's arguably one of the defining staples of any Star Wars show or movie, having something at least to do with the Force. And this has been perceived by many reviewers and critics as detrimental and even disloyal to the essence of Star Wars. Though for myself, I think it adds some very heavy elements to the overall universe and narrative. There are no great consequences if you only get told that an empire is evil and that it's out there enslaving whole planets and strip mining resources for you know, warships and weapons, that it's imprisoning and torturing dissenters for not exactly aligning with the empire's ideals and whims. It's another thing to see all of that played out to great effect as you know, those things make all of what we are only really told of so much more real and meaningful. It's that empathetic connection that gets established with the audience that was really completely discarded in the sequel trilogy. And you can see how well those were received. The New Republic gets destroyed in the first movie. Okay, fine. We don't care because we don't know the New Republic. We have no established empathy, no connection to them. There is no investment or interest in who they are or what they do or how they treat the peoples of the galaxy. I mean, hell, for all we know, the New Republic could have been worse than the First Order and, you know, old Snoky Snoke. I mean, they, they could have saved the galaxy from an enormously corrupt and galactically detrimental regime. We don't even know who is leading the New Republic at the time, or what they're trying to accomplish. We do know that they're perfectly fine with war profiteering and catering to their elite citizenry, very much the same way the First Order is, and just like the Empire before them. So. How exactly does Andor provide us a great addition to the story of Star Wars? And keep in mind, and I've, I've said this plenty of times with uh, the Kenobi and Book of Boba Fett reviews, that I think the showrunners for Disney Star Wars, I, I think um, the, the Gilroys, Dave Filoni, Deborah Chow... Um, and John Favreau, what they're doing with these shows is they're creating 
a overall narrative. They're creating an overall story, right? Much like how the dozen or so authors of the old expanded universe novels did. They worked cohesively, even though they wrote very different stories, to make sure that there was a general continuity. And it made a massive expanded universe that spanned hundreds of books. And that, that, that was over a, a good 20 year span. And it was enthralling to say the least. Now, the way I see it, they're giving us two big things to focus on uh, in Andor, okay? They're giving us a window into the birth of various rebellious philosophies and a study of sacrifice and duty. And it does both of these without any serious fan service. We, we didn't get the emperor addressing the Senate like a lot of people thought was going to happen or maybe a famed bounty hunter or two making a cameo appearance. Although the Death Star construction at the end was kind of cool. <laughs> it was more of a throwaway moment. It didn't really need to be there. We know the Death Star is there, but it was just kind of added for a tease effect and, and to kind of loop in that spoiler alert, that is what the prisoners on Narkina 5 were building those parts for was was for the array uh, dish for the uh, the focusing lens for the Death Star's main weapon. Now the story does focus mainly on Andor and his journey um, on how exactly he becomes a rebel. But we are given two other very important, very different character perspectives as well that are vital to the birth of the Rebellion. Those being Mon Mothma and Luthan Rao. Now Mon Mothma is tackling her rebellious bucking of the Empire, both in the Imperial Senate, where she is dismissed by the majority of her peers, and in her trying to access her family's fortune to fund rebel activity across the galaxy, uh, across the galaxy through her intermediaries, like Luthan. Now, while she pushes for legislation and speaks out against the Emperor's tyranny, you know, like the the genocide being committed against the Gormans, who would be massacred two years later during a peaceful protest, Mothma also is conspiring with Luthen, who she is using as sort of a rebel investment banker. She purchases art from him. And he turns around and funds rebel strike groups and guerrilla forces. And she's very much trying to fight the system from within. Trying to win by playing with the rules given to her, as well as supplying rebel factions that dirty their hands far more than she is comfortable with. Now hers can be seen as a methodology of virtuous combat, believing that victory can be gained by using the system that has been rigged against her and any who dissent or disagree. And if the system is used to commit injustice or criminal activity, then it is her duty and those who believe as she does to expose such crimes and hopefully win their peers over to their side, as well as 
to galvanize the people of the galaxy to support Mothma and her efforts. So hers is very much a philosophy of duty, of survival. And it's displayed by her wanting to play by the rules and traditions laid out before her, even going so far as to conform to the not-so-savory traditions of Chandrilla, her homeworld, by introducing her daughter to the son of a wealthy Chandrillan gangster to earn his support so she can move her money discreetly without the watchful eye of the Empire. It is her duty to those she wishes to defend and save to put her very family and their well-being on the line so as to secure victory via compassion, winning battles of hearts and minds, bolstering assured defectors, quiet supporters, and spies within the Imperial military. Now Mothma wants to defeat the Emperor in the light of day for all to see. Having as little shadowy and closed-door backroom dealings as possible, as these are the definitive traits of the very corruption that she is trying to expose and destroy. These are the things she must do to survive in the galaxy. Especially now it is, as it is one the Emperor has manipulated to create. Now funny enough, the two characters that kind of mirror Mon Mothma rather than her opposite, like uh, Luthen Rao is, are Deidre Miro and Cyril Karm. Both sides are working within the system to attempt to make the system better, to work from within to improve the outcome for everyone. I mean, Cyril is rigid in his perfectionist ideals. Um, it, it's right down to how he dresses and alters his uniform. Uh, he is unwavering in his devotion to duty and rules, even to his detriment and ultimately being fired for doing what was the right thing to do in attempting to bring a murderer to justice when his superior when his superiors would rather have him sweep it all under the rug. Now, Deidre Miro faces a very similar opposition to what Mon Mothma faces in the Senate. No one believes in either one of these people. They, they are shown as having no some, uh, supporters amongst their peers. They have to fight and claw with wit and games of intellect to even inch their way forward. Though they are working towards opposite ends, Mothma and these two mirroring characters are all doing so within the bounds of law and what is just and good, from their certain point of view. Now this is radically different from what we get with her conspirator contemporary Luthen Rall. Now Luthen fronts in the upper reaches of Coruscant as an art dealer, when really he is a coordinator and funder for rebellious activity across the galaxy. He funds operations like those of Saw Gerrera's partisans with credits, information, and tactics to help maximize effectiveness and assure victory. 
And Luthen, he advocates a ruthless and merciless methodology, taking no prisoners, thinking only of the mission, utilizing brutality and pragmatism as needed to ensure that their enemies take the most damage to their resources and their manpower, as well as their overall plans for crackdowns on the galactic populace. If he can weaken the Empire's grip just a little bit, Luthen will spend whatever he needs to do so. And though this ideology that Luthen employs, I mean, he, he not only does it for himself, but he also implements it with his agents, um, like those that he sent to steal an entire imperial sector's payroll. Um, He does so with Cassian. Uh, He does so with Saw Gerrera. He demands that everything be sacrificed for the good of the mission. Now that is Luthen's overall philosophy of action and of sacrifice in order for victory over ultimate evil to mean anything real then he must sacrifice everything. Just as Luthen told his insider ISB agent, uh, Loni Jung, in his spine-chilling speech, that he is damned to use the tools of his enemy, destined to fight for a sunrise that he will never see, that he has burned his life and his morals as kindling to destroy something far more evil than what can be handled with conventional or righteous means. Now, Luthen has his own mirrored characters as well in Saw Gerrera, Kino Loy, and uh, Marva Andor. Now, Saw leads a guerrilla unit of rebels against the Empire. You know, we've seen him before in Clone Wars Rebels, um, Rogue One. They're, uh, they're raiding Imperial bases and supply lines where they can, and uh, they occasionally receive intel and funding from Luthen. Now, to me, Guerrera is a bit more of a radical end of Luthen's ideology, as he has no qualms about damning himself or anyone around him to bring down the Empire. He'll do whatever it takes to destroy them, and... I say that he is the more radical end of Raal because of the void of morality. His complete lack of ethic and being perfectly fine with everything as long as it brings results. While all of these things at least cause inner conflict and and despair within Luthen. He, in, in that speech he gives to Lonnie, he expresses that he doesn't want to be this way. He he realizes that he is in a position where he is forced to be a villain to fight a villain. And he he understands that um, all of what he is do- or a lot of what he is doing is immoral. And it, it clearly causes him 
great grief and and suffering. Um, but Saw Gerrera has none of that. He, I, I mean, he was brought up during the Clone Wars. Uh, his sister died while they were fighting for their planet against the Separatists. Um, and he's been fighting ever since. I mean, he went straight from fighting the Separatists to uh, fighting the Empire. I mean, from, from day one of the Republic turning to the Empire, he is fighting them. So, Saw is very much someone that has been drenched in the the confines of war, and he knows almost nothing else. So he's become very desensitized to it, where I can kind of get the feeling that Luthen, with him, a lot of this is new, uh, a lot of it is unfamiliar, and the the he doesn't have a taste for it still and it's still repugnant he still has some bit of his soul left whereas saw was willing to sacrifice it i mean as soon as his sister died anything to uh, defeat the enemy he's good with but luthan i mean he is being crushed by the weight of building the rebellion with having to sacrifice lives and, and people he knows. The likes of Anton Krieger and his fighters, for instance. Uh, he lets the Empire and the ISB ambush and kill them when he knows that the intel that he and Saw have can save them. Now, Luthen lets them get killed to keep his agent within the ISB safe and working so the rebellion can keep getting information from the inside. And when Saw hears this, he whirls on Luthen and asks, well, what if he had been the one to walk into the ISB's trap? If then, would Luthen be sacrificing Saw as well? Now, from the audience perspective, we know he would. And from everything we've seen from Guerrera, um, from the Clone Wars Rebels and on, I, we know that Guerrera wouldn't hesitate to sacrifice Luthen or Krieger for the greater good. Now, a, a little bit less extreme is Kino Loy. Now, Kino Loy is a great brief mirror of Raw in how he is leading the prisoners on Narkina 5, um, at least in their one building. Uh, he is the one keeping the men in line. Uh, he keeps them slaving away for the Empire until their days imprisoned are up and they can go free. Uh, he reiterates focus on their remaining days, their work, their health and mental well-being, or else the prisoners suffer from the monotony of repetition. And whenever Kino discovers the truth, the fate of Narkina 5's prisoners, he sacrifices the safety of the monotony that kept him in his small modicum of power. He sacrifices the sure thing for what will ultimately mean his death 
but will also mean freedom for everyone else. I mean, to him, it doesn't matter at the end that he can't swim and that if he jumps, he will drown and die. Or if he stays while everyone else leaves, he will be recaptured and be killed as well. But as long as he robbed the Empire of what they were getting from their prison laborers, even for a few measly parts for a day, if he is able to deprive his enemy of them for just a moment, then for him, that becomes worth the sacrifice. Now granted, he is convinced and urged on by Cassian, but the inspiration and the motivation 100% come from Kino Loy. Cassian just encouraged what was already there, which was the courage to lead and to sacrifice. Now, it's obvious to me that these two philosophies of duty and sacrifice are the main themes of the show overall. But, like any good work of fiction, especially dystopian sci-fi fiction, it has a lot of layers of uh, deeper meaning and intrigue and uh, meaningful characters, nods to the future. It's all strewn throughout the show, and it, it, it colors the show so as to shine as a, a gripping and thrilling addition to the Star Wars universe. Now, a, a really big device used um, are the speeches we get throughout Andor. We, we get a good few, and this the effects of the speeches that they have on uh, whoever's receiving them. Now, Mon Mothma gives a speech that, um, you know, to the Imperial Senate. Uh, she gives a speech against the Emperor's tyranny, and it's received by dismissive senators who leave the chamber before she's even finished. Uh, it affects no change at all, as opposed to what we had seen in you know, the prequel movies and the Clone Wars show where whenever Bail Organa or Padme or uh, anyone influential was speaking to the Senate, the Senate was engaged, they listened, they debated. Uh, it, so it's, it's night and day from what we've seen previously with the Republic Senate. Now, the this dismissiveness really highlights the might of the individuals who truly control the empire. You know, the, the military, the ISB, um, Sly Moore, um, the, the imperial attendants and governors. All of these senators are rightfully fearful for their lives and well-being if they dare support anyone speaking out against the Emperor and his minions. They are completely powerless, and they're just going along to get along, much less so they can merely survive in the galaxy becoming more and more authoritarian. Uh, as Palpatine so rightly put it in The Phantom Menace, the bureaucrats are in charge now. Now, a, another speech that we get is 
Kino Lois. He gives this inspiring speech, revealing the truth of the prisoner's imprisonment, that they will never be set free, that once their sentences are served, then they are just moved to a different prison site. He advocates that they run and fight and kill to escape, to help each other and to keep each other moving. He also steals the line that Cassian gives to him earlier, that he would rather die fighting against the Empire than die giving them what they want. Now this drives the prisoners on um, to, to fight and to escape, driving the guards and the staff to cower together in a hall closet uh, as the prisoners jump from the heights of the landing platform into the ocean below, swimming to find freedom. And then, of course, you have Luthen's speech to uh, his ISB contact about he has sacrificed everything, how he's burned his life and his future, how he forsakes his family and love, and how he shares his thoughts and hopes with ghosts. Now, this was a very chilling speech that secured a worried man who wanted to, to, to leave the ISB and... Um, who wanted to stop informing for all. Uh, he wanted to live quietly with his family. Though Luthen managed to keep the cowardly agent in his position so he could feed him intel by giving him the perspective that though the ISB agent may be leading a doubled life as Luthen does, Luthen is the one willing to give his soul, that it is being torn away from him bit by bit to bring down the Empire. And then, of course, there is Marva's speech in the final episode, uh, at, at the end of her funeral procession. She tells the masses of Ferrix that they have been asleep to the evils of the Empire, that as long as the people of Ferrix had each other and had their work, that they kept themselves blind to the Empire's workings. She mentioned that this time, the disease at the center of the galaxy is there to stay, not merely to visit. And I think that's a nod to uh, how the Grand Army of the Republic would occupy Rim Worlds in an effort to garrison and buttress against the Separatists and their activities with the promise that once the sector uh, was secure, the Republic army would leave. Now, sometimes they would. A lot of times they wouldn't. Um, this is very much what happened on Ryloth. The Republic never left. And whenever it became the Empire, then you had the, uh, those Bad Batch episodes where you very much see the Empire's steel grip start to tighten uh, around the people of Ryloth. Now the Empire is here to stay on Ferex, and Marva ends her speech telling the people to wake up early and to fight the Empire, to fight these bastards, to which an Imperial officer tips over Marva's droid projecting her image prompting the people of Ferex to charge the Imperial soldiers. 
and one boy even throws a homemade bomb over the Imperial lines. And then, of course, the officers tell the stormtroopers to open fire, and uh, all of these weaponless masses get start to get gunned down. Now, most citizens fled. Some stayed to fight. But ultimately, we know that Marva's speech will have been one of the many embers sparked that lit the fire of the rebellion. Now, Star Wars has always had a familial element uh, at most of all of its story's cores, whether it be the Skywalkers, uh, Leia with the Organas, uh, the many instances that we saw in the Clone Wars and Rebels, the Bad Batch squad with Omega. I mean, it's, it's always a cornerstone of storytelling in Star Wars stories. Uh, and we we see it with Andor and Marva and Clem. There, it's no exception. It's it's one of the first things that we see. We see in the first episode um, Cassian trying to find his long lost sister, and we see this very Lord of the Flies style backdrop with with those two and all of these other kids speaking a. Uh, an alien language as they're stranded on this planet um, and I mean that's that's how it starts Andor's looking for his sister uh, he's then adopted and we, we get complicated dynamics with Mon Mothma and her family and their traditions we get this unspoken relationship between Cinta and Vel um and then that's complicated because Cinta uh, very much adheres to Luthen's ideology and puts everything, including their relationship, on hold and uh, and on the front lines against the Empire, so um, they can finish the missions, so so they can strike back against the Empire. And all of this is set against a very detailed and gritty dystopian backdrop where the ends justify the means where anyone can be carted off to prison for no reason at all where hundreds can be killed to keep a dark secret quiet so in a world where there's so much evil and, and darkness that I mean it's just one reason why it is so important, and I think the showrunners John and Tony Gilroy recognize this, that though Andor is a very different Star Wars story, that family is still a very integral part of its telling. And that kind of leads me to talk about another layer to this show uh, that I think everyone has kind of mixed feelings about. Um, is any real fan service? <laughs> we we certainly could have had a lot more, uh, and I think there would be as little eye rolling as possible. But we we have characters that we've seen before, like of course Andor and Saw Gerrera, Mom Mothma, uh, and we actually get a live action version of Colonel Yalaren in the ISB. Um, 
and I mean there is the Darth the Death Star's quick six second cameo uh, in the end credits, but other than that, I mean it's all new characters, it's all new worlds and scenes, um, some new ship types and tech. Uh, to to say the least, this show has given us a lot to add to the next series of visual guidebooks and encyclopedias in just 12 episodes, just a few hours. Now, a lot of people were either, you know, rolling their eyes or um, they were excitedly expecting the Emperor or Boba Fett to show up, uh, maybe even Bail Organa, which wouldn't have been too out of the ordinary, seeing as he and Mon Mothma are very close allies. But I actually really like that the show stood very much on its own and gave us its all with unique characters and a lot of Star Wars firsts. And because that's another layer that needs to be addressed and or elevated Star Wars to be much more adult. It had um, a lot more swearing in it. There's some very hardcore death scenes to make the audience really feel the tragedy of what's going on. Like whenever the, the people of Ferrix are fighting the Imperial soldiers, we linger on a close-up shot of a dead man's face for a solid eight seconds to the point to where it's almost uncomfortable. But that's the whole point. It's a message that although Star Wars is an action-packed, adventure-filled uh, universe, it, a big part of what makes Star Wars Star Wars is, well, the war part. And, I mean, going back to it being more adult, there there was a, like a after-boning scene. <laughs> that they have in one of the first three episodes uh, with Bix and her Scottish boyfriend. We had never had that in Star Wars before. There have been a few innuendos and kind of sly jabs and quips here and there, but there was never anything even close to a scene like that before. And I, I think that isn't cheap. I, I think it's uh, showing us that uh, Star Wars is maturing. I, I, I think that we can have scenes like that and it not bring the overall story down because what or de degrade it in any way because it fits in the dynamics of what's happening. Uh, Bix and her is is keeping something from her Scottish boyfriend. He doesn't know what it is. He suspects that she might be cheating on him with Cassian, um, which is which leads to him ratting Cassian out to the Imperials. And she, uh, Bix is very uh, shruggish. She she's very. She, she shuts him out. She shuts out Scottish boyfriend. <laughs> she doesn't let him in on what's going on or what Cassian's doing or their uh, very 
you can tell it's some kind of a relationship that, that they might have been involved at some point, but it's kind of over. And all of that is very subtext. And I really love shows like this that are just heavy with subtext. Um, I mean, overall, we are really seeing that highlighted in Andor to great effect. And I can't wait to see what's done with season two whenever it gets released. Um, oh, speaking of Bix, I mean, my God, if it, another another layer is just how evil the empire really is in this show i mean they torture bix when they're interrogating her by forcing her to listen to the screams of dying children long enough for her to be driven insane and she she gets all ashen and her eyes are sunken and she she's all sweaty and and discombobulated i mean that's some pretty twisted stuff and it's done really very well i, I mean the this doctor character that they get to administer the torture i mean all he's doing pretty much is pushing play on a on a ipod and it's it's uh playing the sounds of you know dying screaming children but the way he's doing it the the manner he has he has this kind of quiet grin this this very impish and i, I do mean like a devilish imp uh kind of glee in what he's doing in torturing bix i mean it's ugh, it's kind of chilling and then i mean that's kind of representative of what of the empire overall in this show i mean they imprison massive amounts of people just pull them off the streets to build their weapons and warships they lie to prisoners to keep them enslaved and i mean then we see the empire's own inner workings with the imperial security bureau they show their true colors of corruption and ruthlessness in board meetings where they discuss crackdowns on civilian populations uh they're, they're ambushing freedom fighters they're tightening security measures and implementing all these regulations we really get a window into just what the rebellion is fighting against exactly what makes the empire evil instead of just being told they're the evil empire. And of course, one major layer of Andor to be explored is, well, Andor himself. Now, in a way, his story is not so much a coming of age. His isn't really a coming of age story at all. He does have a good amount of character development but instead of the classic hero's journey or instead of him having some huge revelation um i i mean he doesn't 
have to learn any new skills or become a better fighter. He, d he doesn't have to get better at blending in or stealing or anything that we would normally see in a coming of age story. Like we don't see, we don't have to see any skills being developed like uh, we would have seen with Luke or Ahsoka or Anakin. He's already a top-notch soldier and assassin and a spy. He's the kind the Rebellion sorely need because he knows what it means to sacrifice whatever it is necessary. And he also knows how to survive. Not just to see the next day, but to make sure you can live with yourself as well. And what his real development is, is that he is no longer content with hiding away and trying to live out a normal life. He does that um, with with some of the credits he steals. But he's he still gets scooped up in Daytona Beach by the Empire uh, and carted off to Narkina 5. And he didn't do anything. All, all he did was walk along the beach and some troopers round him up. That's all it takes. Um, he realizes that he can no longer um, live a normal life. That all there is left for him is to fully devote himself to fighting the Empire. Which is why he turns himself completely over to Luthen at the end. Um, and he knows Luthen has returned to, Fer to Ferex to kill him so that there's no loose end that can be tied back to Luthen. Now this, of course, makes him smile, and he, he takes Cassian in to the fold, uh, and the Rebellion gains a highly competent intelligence officer. And it's this kind of show that makes me really look forward to what I know will be possible for the future. I want this kind of show, but with the Bothans trying to get the plans for the second Death Star, and the Emperor laying traps and allowing the plans to be stolen. Um, I want to see the Rebel fleet engaged at Sullust. Um, I want to see the Imperial Navy's reaction to the death of Vader and Palpatine. And I, I think this show has proven that we can have uh, that kind of show or movie. You know, the, the kind of militaristic, um, espionage-based, revolutionary war story that marks Star Wars as being a true cut above the rest. Well, that is all I had for today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in and stick around for more Sci-Fi Unchained. But for now... Live long and prosper, my friends, and may the Force be with us all.